0: You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. We're just talking about those classic questions in the faith, right? It, that whole idea that if someone came up to you and asked you a question about your faith, do you have an answer? right? Uh, that came from the, the verse in 1 Peter three fifteen that says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So I like a good story time. And I have a story for you that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully you say yeah, yeah at the end of it. It's, it's pretty good. But um, I would say like, Going through this story, at the end of it, this is one of those stories that I'm like, this is something. If someone asked me a question, this is something I would go to. So, here's the story. Back in the day, way, way, way back, when I was in middle school, I was like 13, and I walked home from school every day, and because my house was in the neighborhood across from the street, so me and my twin brother always walked home together same day. Um, He decided that day he was not going to walk home with me. He had something he saw to do at school. I was ready to get out, so I decided to walk home by myself, and it was super cold. By the time I got home, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make myself hot cocoa, because why not? I made myself some hot cocoa, sat down in the living room, watched some TV, vegged out. I was enjoying myself, and then I hear a knock at the door. And I was irritated because I was drinking my hot cocoa. But I decided, okay, I'm just going to go answer the door. It's probably my brother. And so I go. I'm just about to open the door. And I just get checked in my spirit, like, don't just open the door. you got to look through the peephole. You don't know who's there. So I did. I looked through the hole. And I did not recognize the guy. Definitely was not a middle school kid, my brother. He was this giant in my eyes, this big bulk dude. And I was like, not opening the door for you. So I did the quiet game, turn out all the lights, you know, go back to the living room with the TV. I'm gonna pretend like I'm not here. And I waited until I heard his car pull away. Then I'm like, sweet, back to TV time, back to sip of my hot cocoa. Couple minutes go by, I hear another knock at the door. At this point, I'm irritated because now my hot cocoa is cold. I have not got to enjoy it. I keep having to get up to this dumb door, but I'm like, whatever, I'll go answer the door. It's probably my brother for sure this time. I get there. Again, I'm just going to reach out to open the door, but I get checked again in my spirit, like, don't open the door. Look through the peephole. So I stopped. I started to look, like, to get on my tippy toes to look through that hole, and all of a sudden, thud. This guy starts kicking in the door. Panic mode. I'm a 13-year-old little girl. This big guy is on the other side, and he's kicking in the door. This is not a recipe for success. Like, I'm not. Okay, So I'm panicking. Within seconds, he's able to kick out the whole door frame and the door flings open. Shards of wood and nails are flying at me, and it's just a panic. I lock eyes with him, he locks eyes with me, and I say, Hey. And he says a bunch of other words that I'm not going to say, but he just gets so startled and like all of the blood rushed out of his face. And I have no Other way to describe it, but I just knew in that moment he was not looking at me. Like he had made eye contact for a second, and all of a sudden, he was like looking past me and ahead of me and just went terrified in his eyes. And so he immediately turned around and ran out the door, got in the passenger side of his car, and they peeled out of the neighborhood. And so I kind of collected myself. I reached for the phone. I was going to call 911. But I think instinctively, like as a kid, I was like, I got to call my dad. So I called my dad. And he was like, OK, calm down. Go to the neighbors. They'll help you. I'll kind, I'll call 911. So we hang up. I go to the neighbors. They're not there. Great. I'm panicking. So I get back to my house. And just then I see the car, his car, pull back around. And I'm like, no. But the police show up just in time, and there are two cars. He ends up peeling back out, and so one of the cops chased him. The other one came and talked to me about the story. But when we went back into the house, it was like seeing a scene of everything that happened. Like, you know those old movies where somebody dies, and they, like, outline the body with tape, and they take the body away, and it's just, like, some outline on the floor, right? Do you know what I am talking about? That was what it was like going back into that hallway. It was like you could see the imprint of where I was standing and everything that went around me, which in reality, it should have hit me, like get cut by some kind of nail, some kind of wood, but it just miraculously like went around me. So if anyone was going to ask me ever, like, do you think God protects people? Do you think he defends people? I would 100% say Yes, like yeah, I can quote you a verse that says he sends his angels to guard you and he um, sends a hazard protection around you and that he's our refuge and our shelter. And I can quote those verses because I really lived it because I saw like he protected me from this really bad situation, right? That's the heart of this message and of this series is do you have a lens that you can look through in your life and if anyone asks you anything about God, you would be able to say, like, I know this about him. It may not be the most profound answer. It may not change your whole life, but it is something I can confidently say, and I know it actually describes who God is. That's the heart behind this series, and so we're going to continue on in that thought tonight and talk about more of those questions and more of those uh, answers that we need to discover in our faith. Uh, but before we do that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in, Okay. God, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the chance just to get together as believers and just to learn who you are. I pray that you would just speak through, through me tonight. Let your word just land. Let it be sticky. Let it be something that sits with us and, and has immediate effect on our heart, God. We just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, but before we get to the question of the night, I have a question for you guys my question is, why are there questions in the world? Have you ever thought about it? Maybe. I think one of the reasons people have questions about things about faith and just in general in life is because they need an answer. They have not found an answer. Maybe they thought they found it and they've been working that out in their life, but still, there's some kind of wrestling in their spirit and in their soul, and they're still not left satisfied with the question that they have, right? I think another reason people have questions is because people are looking to people that are supposed to represent the answer. And they're seeing this, and they're hearing things, but the two aren't always matching. And so what happens is they're left questionable they're not really any more sure than when they started and maybe even worse off. And so that's what happens. And I just want to kind of put that in the back of our head because we're going to get into how that plays out tonight. But the whole idea is that there are real people in the world and you may be in that group as well that have real questions. Not like, is bubble gum better than chocolate, like, I mean, that's a good question, but it's not, like, life-shattering, right? But there are real questions in life and real people who need real answers, and we play a part in that, or we should play a part in that. So tonight, we are going to continue on with what we've been talking about. The first week, Pastor Jackson talked about the doctrine of uh, the Word. So just talking about, you know, how do we know that the Bible is what we should trust in, and not just some other fancy big book like the encyclopedia. Why is it the source that we put our faith in? And then we talked about the second week, the doctrine of God. Like, why is it God that we believe in and not Buddha or name some other God? Why is it the God that we serve? Why do we believe he is the ultimate God? And we're going to continue on with that tonight with something called the doctrine of man. So if you're taking notes, you can title your notes, Doctrine of Man. And the whole idea that this is trying to answer is the question, who are we? A doctrine is a set of beliefs or practices that a group of people hold. So when we say the doctrine of man, really what we're just saying is that this is what we believe as a church, as Christian people, that God says who we are, okay? Owen Strachan of the Gospel Coalition says, "...the doctrine of humanity, or the doctrine of man, sees the human person as made in God's image, either man or woman, by God's making, fallen through Adam's historical sin, formed for vocation or work unto God, and redeemable in and through the God-man Jesus Christ." Another quote that kind of sums up what this doctrine of man looks like is from Wayne Grudem, and it says, humanity is the race made for god humanity is the race fallen from god humanity is the race made whole by god in christ and god's plan everything bends towards christ so those two quotes really easily and really shortly sum up the whole thing we're going to talk about tonight the doctrine of man is that we were made by god we are his people we are for him we have fallen but he's redeemed us and we can kind of pack it up and go tonight but I'm not going to do that because we like it chunky here. And we're just going to dive deep and kind of understand all the layers to that to really understand why that saying got put together and why it is as powerful as it is. So David Guzik says, the only way we can ever really find out who we are is from God. The best place to find out begins in Genesis So we're going to do it. We're going to go to Genesis. You guys got your Bible? Go ahead and open it up right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Beginning in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So who created us? God. Good job. We're we're getting good already. All right, Genesis chapter 5 continues on with God's creation. It says, in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Then Genesis chapter 2 kind of goes into a little bit more detail of what that specifically looked like with the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, and talks about, in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So already in those little bitty verses, we just know that God made us, and we were a part of God's creation story, but not just a little bitty part. We are a very unique part of that story. So if you're writing notes, number one, who are we? We are image bearers. When you look closely at verse 26, God utters a phrase that he says nowhere else in creation. He made the sea. He made the sun. He made the moon. He makes all these things, and they're awesome. He calls them good. But then when he gets to us, he says something that he hasn't said before. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And that R is talking about that he is having a conversation within himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he is wanting to impart his own image and likeness to the thing he's about to create. John Calvin says, hitherto, which is just like a fancy way of saying up until now, God has been introduced simply as commanding. So we didn't read it tonight, but in the earlier chapters of creation, it says, you know, let there be light, and then there was light. God said, let there be birds in the sky, and then birds showed up. Let there be the sun in the sky, and then the sun showed up. He just gave a command, and then it happened. But now, when he approaches the most excellent of all his works, he enters into consultation for the purpose of commending to our attention the dignity of our nature. He, in taking counsel concerning creation of man, testifies that he is about to undertake something great and wonderful. And we are that something great and wonderful. But why? Like, what made us so special? Like, why? Birds are kind of cool. Like, the suns that's pretty good. Like, that's a good creation. So what makes us so wonderful and great compared to everything else that he has already made? It's the fact that we alone are given his image and likeness. The Hebrew word, like in in English, we have so many words. And we have all these meanings for all these different words. And so we, in our language, like separate the word image out from likeness. They kind of mean similar things, but still different. But in the Hebrew language, it's different. The Hebrew word for image is teslam and is derived from the words to carve or to cut. The Hebrew word for likeness is demoth, and and the Hebrew language, they would always combine those two words. They were never used separately. They always shared the same meaning. And so Wayne Gretham talks about that. The significance of this is that when scripture reports that God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, it simply would have meant to the original Hebrew readers, Let us make man to be like us and to represent us. So the significance of our of us like bearing God's image is that we have been given the assignment to represent God. Like that's weighty. That's awesome. Isaiah 43 says, uh, reminds us that this representative nature, it didn't just apply to Adam and Eve. All right, that would have been cool alone just to give that superpower to them but it extends to us because we were um, inherited that glory it says bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth everyone are you and everyone yeah okay so everyone who is called by my name whom I have created for my glory I have formed him yes I have made him so we all just like Adam just like Eve have been said the same thing by God, like you are supposed to represent me. You have been made in my image, in my likeness. So we are image bearers. But how specifically are we image bearers? Number one is we bear God's image and try unity. So just like God is made up of three parts, but he's all the same. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have three parts within us. We have our body, we have our soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions, and we have our spirit. And I don't have a lot of time tonight to really dive into that part, but Pastor Tanray did a great message a couple weeks ago in our Roman series that really dives into what that is. So I would encourage you guys, go back and listen to that, or listen to it for the first time on the podcast, because it's going to help just bring that back out, like the significance of that moment. But what I want to highlight is if we are really bearing God's image and being an image bearer, then we have to be unified within ourselves. Our body has to be unified with our spirit and with our soul. And that doesn't mean perfection. Because if that's what we're waiting for, it's not going to happen. But it's talking about the closer I look like Christ then the more those things are going to be unified, right? I can't constantly say, yes, I desire, my spirit desires to be with God. I want to be pleasing to God. I want to be super patient. And then the very next second, I turn around and cuss out my neighbor. That means, like, I'm in conflict. I'm not actually bearing the same image, right? So it's not about perfection, but the closer I really am to imaging Christ, the more those things are unified. And the reason why that looks like Christ is because God did that with himself in creation. He wasn't divided. He was unified, right? He said, let us make man in our image. God didn't come up with a plan and be like, you know what? I want to make man look like this. And the Holy Spirit was like, you know what? I don't really like that. I think I want him to look like a turtle. And they just have this conversation back and forth. We don't see that in scripture. It says, let us make, and then they did it. So they were unified in vision. They were unified in purpose and in action. And it was a collaborative creation. So if we're bearing God's image, we have to walk in unity. That doesn't just mean my body, either. We're called, in Scripture, it talks about that the church represents the body of Christ. So is there unity within the church? Are we so divided? Like, do we have so many sects and so many different cliques? And, or are we divided in that, yeah, we're super great worshipers, but we're not great at listening. Or we're super great at serving uh, at church, but we're not great at serving at home. Like, we have to be unified even in the body. And again, it's not perfection. But the more I look like God, the more I have to be unified. We bear God's image or we represent his likeness and the fact that we have authority and dominion. Again, back to verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. But then he continued and he said, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we are the only created thing that got permission to rule over something else that got created. Right? Like when was the last time an elephant came up to you and was like, "Hey, I need you to go do this today." Right? Or when was the last time your bed just like stood up and knocked you out of bed and was like, "You need to get ready for the day." That may be beneficial, but that has never happened ever. Or like your dog it's like, you know what, you've been kind of cranky, I'm going to make you some food. Come sit at the table, I'm going to put a bowl of food in front of you. That's never happened, right? Because they're not in authority over us. We are in authority over them. We've been given dominion over them. But it's important to re- understand that we were given the likeness of God, that we were called to represent God. We are not God. Matthew Henry says, That man was made last of all the creatures that it might not be suspected that he had been in any way a helper to God in the creation of the world. That question must be forever humbling and mortifying to him. Where was thou or any of thy kind when I laid the foundations of the earth? We were creation. We were not creator. None of us showed up that day on creation and were like, you know what, I would really like blonde hair. So... 2,000 years from now, make that happen. We had no say in creation. So we aren't God. We don't get to have the ultimate authority, but we get to partner with God and showcase his authority. The Schofield Study Bible says, Man created in God's image was placed in sovereignty over the earth, crowned with glory and honor, yet subject to God, his creator. So the authority we represent is an invitation for obedience. And it's an invitation for dependency on God as the ultimate authority in all of the world, in our life, in our school, in our home, in our relationships, and everything. We bear God's image in our authority and our dominion. The next way we bear God's image is in our morality. And Pastor Jackson talked about this last week when he was talking about how do we know that God is real? That God exists? And he talked about one of the ways we know that is our inner self, like there is something within all of us that knows there's right and wrong, there's good and evil. The world debates on what exactly that right and evil is, but everyone has some kind of standard. And what that is saying is we all have morality in our nature. We all have a sense of morality written on our heart. Leviticus 19.2 says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the first thing that we have to know to answer, like, who are we? We are image bearers because we have a triune, uh, a trinity aspect to our life. We have been given dominion like Christ, and we have moral character like Christ. The second question to ask, or the answer of who are we, is we are fallen. I want to take some time to read through Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Um, and we're going to just kind of dive into this aspect to, to kind of study this out. But it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you won't die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree is good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself, and He said to him, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat?" Then the man said, "The woman who you gave me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate." And the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" It's crazy to me how fast this image bearer gets changed, and falls so easily and so quickly and the image gets distorted and why we know the image gets distorted in part is that immediately they start doing different things they start feeling like the body they had never gotten weirded out about all of a sudden they're ashamed about and they have to cover it and they have to hide it and now the person they've been walking with and communing with and knowing nothing different from all of a sudden he's somebody they have to hide from and so their nature is changing because they're changing and they're doing different things. So just like we inherited our image bearing, we have also inherited a fallen nature. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.22-23 says, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But why was that sin of eating the apple so bad. Like, why did that have power to change their image? It's because God, number one, or sorry, let me back up. The reason why it was so significant was that um, their sin, first of all, gave a different answer to who am I question, right? Where God had declared, you're going to represent my image. You're going to be in unity with yourself you're going to experience authority and you're going to walk in that and you're going to be have a moral nature where you already know right and wrong and it's already written on your heart and that is going to be your representation of me this enemy the snake comes by and he starts questioning all of that he starts turning it all on its head and starts saying that's not who you're going to be and he starts making it um, to be an enemy of what God is saying Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, it said, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you have your Bible highlight that, like God. Like God. He's enticing them to be like God. But God already gave them his likeness. He already said that at the beginning, like, I want you to be like me. I want you to be made in my likeness. So Satan is not tempting them with anything they aren't already. So what is he really tempting them with? He's tempting them to not just represent God, but to be God. He wants them to go beyond what God has said and to be their own God themselves. And we do that same thing. That's why we have that inherited sin. We do that all the time where we make God no longer God and we are our own God, right? It's this idea that it's my life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do with it. When you do that, you're your own God. The consequence of their sin is that they were giving a different answer to who am I. The next consequence of that sin is they were giving a different answer to the whose authority question. When you study this out in Scripture, it's kind of interesting because the reality is that Eve ate first, right? She ate the apple. So it's kind of weird when you keep reading Scripture, the person's name that keeps getting dropped all the time and getting blamed, it's Adam. And so why did Eve, like, did she get out of it? She didn't. She was still responsible for her sin, and she still held a lot of consequences for her sin. But what happened was that Eve was deceived. It talks about when the serpent was talking to her, that her eyes changed, like what she saw changed, which means she was deceived. And she, that's still sin. It's still sin that she is accountable for, and she still had to reap the consequences too. But Adam willfully laid his authority aside and participated in sin. He wasn't deceived, he was compliant. The fallen man, as seen in Adam, was not taking dominion over who and what God had entrusted to him. In verse 6, it says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Homeboy Adam was chilling the whole time. He was there. Like, I always read that story and think he was, like, back at home, and she comes and, like, guess what I did today in the garden, and then it goes downhill from there. But he was there the whole time listening to this slippery serpent say some lies to his wife and not saying a word. He was silent. Adam had authority over the devil, and he was silent in the moment. The reason why we know he had authority is because God confronts him and he, he's like, you can't get out of this. He, when God sees them in the garden and he starts talking to them like, why are you hiding? What's going on? The person he goes after first, the person he talks to first is Adam. Because he reminds him that in verse 26... Um, Of Genesis 1, he had said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. He lists a bunch of things that they're going to have dominion on. But the last thing I want you to take note of, you're going to have dominion over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Adam had authority over the devil as he was creeping into that conversation. He didn't slither in like snakes do now. That's part of the consequence of that sin. The Bible talks about that snakes like had to slither from then on out. So he wasn't slithering at that point, he was creeping. And so Adam had the authority on him, and he had the responsibility to not be silent when the enemy came in and started speaking, but he stood there silent. And we do that same thing in our inherited sin. We sit by and we let the enemy, Satan, just come up with all types of stories, all types of arguments about this is who you're supposed to be. This is who you're supposed to be. This is what you should do. God's lying to you. He's not really mean that. You're not really. It's not really going to cost you your life. And we're silent. And then, if we start talking, we don't talk in a good way. We do what Adam does and we say it wasn't me. It was her. And in fact, it's the one you gave me, God. We point our finger to other people and we point our finger at God, and we accuse people. And that does not image God, right? Jesus, he always stood for truth, right? He acknowledged when things were sin, he called it out. He didn't just stay there silently. He addressed it. But he also wasn't thumping people over the head with a Bible and just saying, all you have in front of you is hell. He was gracious and he was merciful. And he invited sinners in and helped them transform their lives and didn't leave them where they're at. But we do this In our life, when we are silent, we let go of the authority that we're supposed to walk in to represent God when we're silent and when we are accusatory to people. Those people are accountable for their sin, just like Eve. But ultimately, they're not the ones majorly failing. It's us. We're the ones walking around with a bigger distorted image. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, "For Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Matthew 5 talks about that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are supposed to bear God's image. But that image gets distorted and distorted every time we decide we're laying down our authority and we're going to be silent in the face of sin or we're going to be accusatory in the face of sin. It distorts the image of God, and we don't look like him anymore to a people who need to see him. There's a saying by somebody, they don't know who said this a long time ago, but it's a good quote. It says, The only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. The consequence of this sin and why it distorted this image Another reason was it gave a different answer to what is true and right. Where God had said, you're not going to die. God said, you will die if you eat from this tree. The serpent said, you're not going to. And Eve decided to doubt the truthfulness of what God was saying. And she, um, as Wayne Grudem puts it, she decided to conduct an experiment to see, like, what is really going to happen if I take part in this? Eve trusted her evaluation on what she was seeing, on what was right, on what was gonna be good for her, instead of letting God define it. And we do the same thing. That's exactly what our culture does right now, is we are gonna be the ones who define everything, right? It's my truth. It's whatever pronoun I wanna put in front of my name. It's whatever I wanna identify about. It's whatever my feelings are saying. It's what's good for me is good for me. Love is love, right? All, all the ways to say, it at the end of the day, what that's saying is, I know what's right, I know what's true, and God does not. David Guzik says it's precisely because people have abandoned the truth of Genesis that society is in such disarray. The first couple sin is our sin. Furthermore, we do not trust and obey God's word, worshiping Him through obedient following, but rather. Trust and obey ourselves, obediently worshiping as we do. The original sin is our inherited sin, because every time we participate in that and say, I'm going to choose what's right, I'm going to choose what's true, we're distorting the image. We're not keeping morality like it's supposed to be. We're not walking in authority. We're not being in unity with what God made. And so it's a distortion. And I think that's one of the reasons the world struggles with this question so much of who are we? Like as humans, who are we? I think part of it is because that serpent didn't just stay in the garden, right? The enemy is still going around and saying deceiving things. He's distorting thing after thing after thing and manipulating everything that God made to make it something different. And he's continuing to deceive a lot of people. When I was, I just went on Wikipedia and just kind of Googled, like, all the different sexual orientation identities, like, all those labels, and over a hundred different ones popped up. God gave two, and there's a hundred now, and one of those is other. It's just the word other. Other literally means um, to be different, further, additional, This is what's crazy is Satan is not even hiding. He's literally telling you, like, you don't want to be what God made you. Like, here's something. Let's add to it. You're going to be different than what it is. And if you're different and if you're adding, it means you're not the original, which means that's not how you were made. So the idea and the, like, hide behind, like, this is just who I am, it's not. If you're different, that's not who you are made, right? That was not the original. And it's a distortion from God's original image. And so people are having this question because he is still saying these deceptive things. And there's nobody around speaking anything else. I think the second reason a lot of people struggle with this question of who are we is the fact that when they look to people who claim to be a Christian, which means to be Christ-like, what they're seeing doesn't look any different than who they are. What they're seeing doesn't look anything like a God that they are imagining. And so who, who are we if you don't look like who you're proclaiming you're looking like? We're self-centered, idolizing ourselves over God and over other people that he creates. And we're silent in our authority. And we have redefined God's truth and righteousness for our own. So who we are, the second understanding to that question is that we are image bearers who now bear a fallen image. The third thing is... Who are we? We are a restored image. Wayne Grudem says the human race, as presented in Scripture, is primarily a history, a man in a state of sin and rebellion against God, and of God's plan of redemption to bring back people to himself. In the fall, God's image was distorted, but not lost. Colossians 1 talks about that, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So what it's saying is he is changing that image back. He's not calling it fallen anymore. He's not calling it broken anymore, but redeemed and back to that original image. 1 Corinthians 15 says, for as, Adam, for as an Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. All those scriptures, what they talk about is that God meant what he originally did in the garden He meant for that image to be what it was. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't forget to add something to you. He didn't mean for that was just the starting point and then it was going to develop to something else. Like He meant that original image. And it also says that he made a way for that created image that's been distorted to be redeemed and to be remade back. So who are we? We are an image bearer. And we are a people who have a fallen nature about us. And we have a distorted image. But we serve a God who, he's the one who gave us the image to begin with. And he's the one who did everything in his power that we needed in order for that image to be restored. We are an image bearer who has a distorted image. But we have a God who has redeemed that image. So tonight, we'll go ahead and close the band. Sorry, you guys can come on up. Um, If you guys want to stand up, we're going to just get into a time of prayer and and focus. I want us just to be really honest with ourselves tonight and really contemplative in our thought. I think there's like a lot of invitations that we can give tonight, all centered around this idea of image and who God says we are. I think the first, uh, leaders, you can make your way down as well. I think the first invitation is if you are struggling with your image. That can look like a lot of different things. Like maybe there's something about you you're not happy with. Like you don't like what you see in the mirror. You don't like, you don't feel like it's enough. You don't feel like it's worthy. You, you have heard lies from the enemy and other voices that have said that that image is not good. And tonight, like you wanna come down and get God's version of your image. Or maybe your image is messed up because you have distorted it. Maybe it's been distorted through acts of sin. Maybe it's been distorted because you've never heard God say over you that, like, I loved you. I made you perfectly and wonderfully, and I called you beautiful. The Bible talks about that he knows the number of our hairs on our head. It says he knew us when our moms, before they were pregnant with us, he already saw us, and he knew us by name. So that's intimate, and you have never heard that that you don't know that God knows you that intimately. But tonight, like, that's your invitation, is I want to know what you know about me. I wanna see the secrets that you hold about me and how you view me. Like, what is that image that you see when you look at me? Whatever that is, whether it's sin-related, whether it's um, just a distorted image, whatever that is, tonight, your altar call would be, I want my image back. I want it redeemed. And that's your invitation. I think the second invitation is that you have been trying to be a representative of God and you've tried to look like God, but the reality is, as you know that you haven't done a great job at it, that you aren't unified. Maybe you don't look as Christ-like as you know you should be. Maybe you've been silent in the face of lies and other people. Maybe you've been accusatory and you're that Christian who's, who's not very pleasant, <laughs> whatever that looks like. And tonight your invitation is to say, God, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry I represented you poorly and I want to partner with you. All of this story, it's only God that does it. The only reason we get to represent him is because he exists. I can't do it in my own. I can't be God. I'm not God and I can't even represent God without God being there as a model and working with me. So tonight is like, I'm not asking for you to strive harder and work harder. But just to come before God and say, God, I understand, like, there is a responsibility with bearing your name. And I have just put that to the wayside, but no more. Like, I am not going to bear your image relaxing anymore. Like, I'm going to take it seriously. I think the third invitation is maybe you know somebody who is struggling with their image. They have believed something about themselves that is just a flat-out lie, and they're struggling. They're struggling with sexual orientation, sexual identity. They're struggling with feeling like they're the mean girl all the time, and, and that's not them. Whatever that looks like, you guys know those people in your life, and you're like, I wanna be the representative tonight. I'm gonna stand in their place, and I'm gonna ask God to partner with me and help me to speak life into them and to remind them that they bear the image of God. Whatever that looks like, basically what it is tonight is we're just going to let God redeem his image. So if you want any way, God, to redeem your image, or if there's anything else you want to partner with in prayer, we want to connect with you guys in prayer so you can make your way down to one of our leaders and they'll pray with you. And I'll pray to close this out. God, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you, God, that you love us so much, that it's such an eternal reward to know that you gave us your image, that you valued us that much that you were willing to take a chance on a people who would mess it up over and over and over, but you still allowed us to bear your image. God, I pray right now that you would just release freedom in the room, that if there is any lie that someone is holding on to that does not match the image you made, I pray you would just break that off of them in the name of Jesus. No matter where we're at in this process, God, I pray that we would walk out of this room bearing your image as you intended. Thank you for the ability to be redeemed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.